Anyway, I want to welcome up. Uh, we have a testimony tonight, a story. Uh, John Brechtel, come on up, John. I'm blessed. Uh, I had a great time speaking with John last week. John is actually in the School of Ministry at Costa Mesa, and uh, he heard about one of our plumbing catastrophes here at the church that I was uh, replacing a sewer line uh, a couple weeks ago under the church. And uh, he said, hey, you know, I'll come down and just help you out. And um, so he came down, and we ended up going and having lunch and just had a great conversation. So I'm excited for him to share what God's done in his life. So I'm going to hand it over to you, John. Hey, all right, dude. All right. Well, hi, like you said, I'm John. Uh, Dave's one of my teachers there and, uh, at, the, at the School of Ministry. Um, I attend over there at uh, Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano with uh, John Randall's church down there. And uh, it's, it's a blessing to be here to see some brothers here that I've knew, known from uh, School of Ministry. And uh, well, I guess, you know, as I look back and I tell my testimony over and over again, it, it's just, you know, I feel like as I look back even farther, you see God's hand just in it all the way, you know, and even before you even think he had his eye on you, you know, and, and, uh, and it's kind of amazing. Well, I, I guess I kind of grew up in a, in a weird family uh, situation, you know, and it's probably not foreign these days, but my, uh, uh, I was raised by my grandparents because uh, my mom and dad were heavy, heavy into drugs and, and, uh, and uh, they weren't really taking care of me the way they should have. So, you know, my, my grandmother, by the grace of God, pulled me out of there. And so I kind of I would see my parents once in a while, you know, and, and, and they would be around, but, but very, very little, you know, and, and they were kind of a mess when they were. So, you know, God was kind of sparing me from, from that. But as, as I grew up, I started to get into uh, hanging out with the wrong crowd and uh, getting involved in gangs and stuff like that. I ran with a lot of, a lot of Hispanic gang members and stuff in, uh, in high school and, and uh, you know, and I wasn't doing very well. You know, I had, uh, at 18, I was arrested for the first time, and, and God had, uh, you know, brought this situation out for me so he could, you know, really reveal himself. And, and you know, what I got into a fight outside of a bar, and, you know, what I, I wounded a guy pretty heavily. And uh, I was lucky I didn't get more time, you know. And, and But by the grace of God, they... Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I kind of, uh, when I was arrested at 18 years old, you know, what people were like in there, like, well, you're in here for what? You know? <laughs> and uh, it was kind of, you know, because it was a pretty serious crime. And, and you know, I, and by the grace of God, I only ended up getting a little bit of time. But uh, upon turning myself in to, to do my sentence, uh, uh, I, I walk into this place for the first time and, and I see all these Bibles laying around. You know, and they're completely just laying around, throwing around. There's stacks of them, you know, and, you know, you constantly see that in a jail. And uh, so out of sheer boredom, you know, I was a little bit scared, you know, 18 years old, you know. And uh, I, I started reading the, the New Testament, and, and God just began to speak to me through it. And he began to, like, I, I just, the, the revelation, I just thought, you know, th- this is, this could not be for man, you know. I mean, right away just upon reading it and reading through the gospels and it's just it really just amazing thing you know and he began to minister to me you know and I and I feel like you know I went to church in there a couple times and God you know I saw it was like it was a holy ghost party in there man it was a you know heavy pentecostal atmosphere and stuff like that people 
You know, it was a lot of fun, you know, a lot of rolling around. No. <laughs> but, you know, you know how that goes. But at the same time, you know, uh, uh, I, I just wasn't quite understanding what, what it was going on. And uh, so, you know, I got out of there and uh, left it behind because obviously, you know, I wasn't willing to give up certain things in my life. And there was no true repentance. But, uh, but I'd come back six months later. And then, you know, I'd read the Bible. And I go back out again, you know, and then I come back again, you know, and uh, as soon as I got locked into the system, it was, it just, that was it for me, you know, and, and you know, as for sin, it's progressive. It never gets better, you know. Uh, you know, we never want to desire things less. We end up desiring things more. And, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol began to rule. You know, I had a violent temper and violent behavior, you know, at, um, uh, and as going in and out of the county jail, you know, and finally one year they, I got arrested, you know, for supposedly, you know, I didn't really have a gun, but they said I, you know, pulled the gun out and stuff. And uh, I bailed out of there. They came, surrounded my house and picked me up again, you know, and they rebooked me on a bunch of other charges for different crimes I was involved in. And then uh, so for the first time I ended up in state prison and, uh, uh, I started getting more and more involved in the, the, the politics in there, you know, and, you know, and I kind of left the Bible behind, and, and it was kind of becoming a long, faraway thought. You know, uh, as you go in there, that, that, that whole lifestyle, it begins to just corrupt you, you know, and, and, you know, and it begins to overcome your life and overpower your life. And so I got to a place kind of where I was, I would like to say I was institutionalized, and uh, I really didn't do well when I got out. You know, I didn't know how to go about getting a job. And when I did get a job, I'd, I'd stay out too late, you know. And, uh, and so I just really didn't have, you know, I couldn't hold a job. I really had a hard time doing that. And uh, uh, so I, so after my time in Soledad, I ended up, um, you know, getting out. And then I ended up getting busted again four months later. And I ended up in Folsom State Prison. And uh, I had a punky who was a celly. I mean, I mean, a punky who was a celly. My celly. My bunkie, he, he actually, uh, he was a Christian. He couldn't read the Bible. He didn't know how to read, but he was a big old guy, about 300 pounds. And, and he was from Wilmington, you know, the big old Chicano guy, man. And he, <laughs> he was a Christian, you know, but he had backslid and robbed about 12 liquor stores or something like that. You know, talk about a bad day, right? Yeah, talk about backsliding, right? Like it takes away. Uh, you know, and here this guy is, you know what, he's doing a lot of time. You know, he had this finger that stuck out a lot, you know, and so, so he was always pointing, you know, and he goes, you know what, you guys, man, you guys are going to go to hell, and you know what, and we kind of laugh at him and stuff, and you know what, and you know, that's what people in the world do, because, you know, they just don't have the mind, you know, they have no idea what, what, what God is visiting, but it seemed like that first year that when I, when I got out on, on the first of the year that God, I couldn't get arrested. You know, and, and I mean, everything was falling out for me. I mean, the drugs and the alcohol, you know, what, you know, and I was getting worse. And, and uh, that's about the time of the Hollywood shootings and stuff like that, you know, when those guys came out and had a big old gun battle with the police. And I thought, ah, that's the way I want to go out, you know. And that was my kind of th weird thinking, you know. And, uh, and, and I was losing my mind and my sanity pretty quick. And it seemed that year that my sin was just, it just overwhelmed me. I felt like, you know, I felt like I felt like I need to go to a priest or something, you know. But you know, at the same time, I, you know, I'd read the Bible and I understood it, and um, 
You know, my parole officer would come to my house, or he'd be, I'd be waiting for my parole officer, waiting to, you know, I'll think, I'm going to jail now, you know, and he goes, you know what, yeah, I can't make it today, I'll just see you next week, you know, and so I go, okay, you know, and so I'd go out and live that way again, but I think it was for God to intervene in my life, you know, and I, I needed, I needed something because, you know, I was, I was becoming very suicidal, and, and I was pretty, pretty crazy, the meth and all that stuff like that was just eating away at my mind, you know, my sanity, and uh, one day I just felt as though, you know, I, I, I talked to my grandmother on the phone and she, you know, she was about, you know, at the point, she's at the point where she's like, you know, it's really, you know, she's kind of weeping a little bit, but she's like, you know, she doesn't know what to do with me, you know, and, and uh, I'm a mess, and, you know, and I was out doing who knows what, and then, uh, and, you know, and th I just felt the, the, the conviction upon my life the way I was living, and that the Holy Spirit was just, it was just grinding me down, and I, I just felt, you know, I said, is there, if there's a God, help me, because I felt like driving off a cliff right there, you know, I was so close to just, I was miserable with my life, and uh, so I was in a meth house that night, you know, we're kind of sitting there, and uh, I quite, I don't quite understand what happened, but I felt dead to the world, and I just felt God's presence come on me so heavily that I don't know if it's by revelation. There was no preacher. I just knew that Jesus Christ was Lord. Uh, I wasn't looking for God at the same time, but at the same time, he intervened upon my life. And, and people, you know, I said, you know, I left that place, and I told people, yeah, I'm going to go to church. You know, and they, they were like, yeah, dude, you need to get some sleep. <laughs> you know, and a few people, they thought I lost my mind, and God began to to do a work, and, and I began to go into church, but, you know, I had that struggle within my walk. A lot of people do when they get saved, when they come out of the world that, you know, I, I would fall. I felt like I had soap underneath my shoes, right, because I kept falling, you know, and, and it just, you know, and, and I really struggled in my walk, and I think my biggest battle was that when I was a Christian, you know, because I'd do good for six months, and then I'd fall, and then uh, one year I just decided to I'm tired of this, I keep falling, you know, I need to just, you know, I, I just walk away, and, and uh, that, once you're saved, you know, that's, that's a whole different world as a Christian, you know, walk away, try and walk away, you know, think, oh, I'm going to show you, I'm going to run away, you know, but really, you know, that, that whole year was a torture for me, and uh, the drug, my, you know, I was worse as a Christian as I was as a, you know, as a heathen, you know, <laughs> You know, I had, had developed a heavy habit on the needle for about a year and a half, and uh, and uh, God kept warning me. You know, God, God kept stopping you know people in my face and just say, "Hey, I, I think I'm supposed to talk to you." <laughs> you know, I'm like, "Hey, I gotta go, man." You know, and it was just uh, God trying to warn me and throw these signs up in my life, and and uh, you know, he he ended up, I ended up getting arrested, and and uh, and from that point on, I I ended up in prison again as a Christian. And that was the worst for me because here I am, a white guy that ran with Mexicans in prison, like Hispanics. It's a racial place in there. And now I'm going to be a Christian. <laughs> and, and they don't look to Christians too well in there as, uh, you know, because I felt, you know, because that day when I was sentenced, I felt as though, you know what, that was the day, you know, the, the judge yelled at me and just said, you know what, I'm going to give you a break. You know, and she was, so she just slapped a sentence on me, and I, and I remember weeping in that cell and just saying, God, that's it, I'm done. And, and, uh, and from that time, 
I was done. And I went into Wasco and went into all the prison system, you know, and I told the guys I'm on my own. You know, they said, well, we're not going to let you go, but if we need you, we'll call you. And uh, I said, all right. And God was with me all the way through it. And uh, he intervened in my life in such a way that when I got out, it was, it was done. You know, and it's been, it's been close to 13 years now. Actually, over 13 years since he set me free from drugs and alcohol, and uh, he's given me a new, a new, you know, a new life, wife, kids. You know what? And it's been a blessing. You know what? He's he's done more than I could ever even think, ask, or imagine. You know, his kindness to me, his patience, Lord. I mean, he's patient to us. You know, the Lord's so gracious how he just sees us along, and, and, and despite ourselves, you know, he who began that good work is faithful to complete it. You know. That we kick and scream, he he has a way of making us willing, and and I, I just and I appreciate him doing that because, you know, where would I have been? I would have been dead, man, you know. And uh, so that that would be my testimony. But bless you guys, thank you. All right. <laughs> so John currently runs a one-step program at uh, Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. So what is the one-step program? What does that look like? Well, basically what it is, it's not, a, it's not, a, like, your, it's not like a, a secular program. It, it's a God-based program. And what it is is that it, it, what, what we go by is one step to Christ. And uh, uh, basically what we do is that we have a Bible study and a small teaching. And, uh, and then we have a little time of open up groups, but it's all God-based. Uh, there's no really secular, anything secular about it because we believe that you know, when somebody's given their life to Christ, you know, uh, it's God's job, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's not really necessarily a self-help program. I think I've helped myself enough to where, you know, I helped myself back into prison. I helped myself, you know. So uh, I think it's a, just a total reliance and trust in God, you know. And uh, after school ministry, you and your wife, or what, what are you thinking about? What are you praying about doing now? Yeah, we're going to – we're definitely – really serious about moving into Mexico when we get out here. Uh, uh, matter of fact, we're just doing a lot of praying about what we're going to do with our house, what are we going to do. So we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to probably go into Mexico there and uh, uh, probably maybe in Baja or, or maybe somewhere else, wherever the God opens the door. But uh, I, I do a lot of work down there in a men's home down there uh, with a lot of brothers off the street of Tijuana. Uh, it's kind of by Ensenada. It's inland from there. But yeah. Well, let me pray for you. Yeah, sure. Lord, thank you so much for John. God, you are in the habit of taking dead things and making them alive, Lord. Each and every one of us in this room, Lord, who knows you and has been born again, was brought, brought from the grave to life, Lord. And we give you praise for how you do this wonderful work in us, Lord. Father, I pray for your blessing to be upon John and his wife, Lord. We just pray, God, you'd lead them. And it seems though they are seeking you. And so, Lord, we know that wherever you lead them, you'll use them for your power your glory, Lord, and that's all that I know that they would want. So we give you thanks. We thank you for his faithfulness to share of your goodness, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, man. And uh, by the way, I am the easiest instructor, right? (laughs) So, uh, you know, if if that's something, even maybe you have the background, um, please pray. I'd love to get a one-step program going here at Calvary Old Town. Um, I'd love to, to see that happen for those who have struggled or even just to, to help those who are currently struggling uh, with addiction. We'd love to have that happen. So 
Pastor Dave asked me to record a correction to the following sermon. He writes, In my sermon, I incorrectly state that Pentecost falls 21 days after the resurrection. This is incorrect. The Pentecost follows 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened on the Feast of First Fruits. 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost was celebrated. Thank you. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3. And we are continuing on through the book of Revelation tonight. And uh, in the church of Sardis. And before we get into reading the scripture, um, I do want to say that, uh, you know, we've we've been going through this pass these passages, these letters to the seven churches. And, and of course, um, we, we keep reading the number seven, and I don't know that I actually have remembered to draw attention to the number seven. But what I want to want to propose to you, I believe, is the number seven is God's number of completion. Seven days to create, seven churches. It's the complete picture of the church. We recognize that there are more than seven churches, and, and I'm Hesitant, I know some people use the number seven as the, the perfect number, but I'm hesitant to say that because certainly as we look at the seven churches of Revelation, we don't see perfection, do we? We actually see the lack thereof in these churches. But it's a wonderful picture to us to evaluate, to let Christ see us, to let Christ challenge us and convict us. If you are a member of the church today, now I don't mean a member of Calvary Chapel Old Town, I mean a member of God's church, Christ's church, his bride. That means you're born again in Christ. You're that new creation. I encourage you to approach Bible studies, sermons, messages, the word of God to say, Lord, I want you to confront my character with your divine moral will. That's what we want. We want God to confront us and we want to look more like him. So if you don't approach it that way, you're not going to gain much from, from tonight's study either. But I pray that that, that will be your, your will, that you'll say, Lord, confront me, conflict me, uh, uh, really search me and know me. Let me be more and more like you. Early we saw the church of Ephesus, and the church of Ephesus was commended for holding fast to the right doctrine, but they lost their first love in Christ. Jesus said, remember the height from which you have fallen and turn back to me. And and we said that the church, the believer, should love Christ first and foremost above all other, other things. Then we looked at the church in Smyrna, the suffering church, that church that was under great persecution. And the, the promise to the church in Smyrna wasn't, oh, don't worry, I'm going to stop all this for you. It was hold fast because more is coming. So endure for my name. And we learned that the church, the believer, should endure for the sake of Christ. Then we went to the church of Pergamum, and we saw the church of Pergamum had compromised God's word. They had, they had started making subtle compromises and allowing heresies and allowing uh, false teachers to come in. And, uh, and we, one of the things we learned from the church of Pergamum is the believer, the church, should hold fast to the word of God. And we'll see that again. We'll see the flip side of that next week with the church of Philadelphia. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw the church of Thyatira who had allowed a false prophetess to come in and started seducing them to be sexually immoral and, and, be, uh, and, and involve themselves in the worship of idols, eating food sacrifice to idols. 
And we learn that the church should be pure. The believers should be pure. And I, I challenge you, as we go through these churches, if you find yourself compromised by the word, turn. The goal of hearing these letters to the churches is not that you would remain as you are, but that you would change, that you would repent, that you would do what Christ says so that you can benefit from all the rewards that he wants to offer. That's a loving God. So let's go ahead and um, read the scripture, and then we'll pray, and we'll get started with tonight. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the power of your word, Lord, that your word will not return void. Lord, that it pierces joint and bone and marrow. Lord, that it's able to convict us, able to to teach us, to encourage us. Lord, it's able to conform us more and more to your likeness. And we thank you that your word equips us and makes us ready to live for you. We pray now that you'd open up your word to us. Holy Spirit, teach us. Help us to have understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, I read a story from the Associated Press about a South African man in his 60s who woke up startled inside the the city morgue. He had uh, had an asthma attack uh, the, the day before, and his family assumed he had died, although he had just passed out. So they called in a person a private um, caregiver, the private caregiver came in, checked pulse, checked for heart, breathing, all this sort of stuff, said, nope, he's dead, called it. They sent him off to the morgue, and he was actually in the refrigerator of the morgue for 21 hours. Well, he woke up to his surprise, his shock in this refrigerator, um, and he started screaming. And unfortunately, the morgue workers that were in the morgue heard the screaming, and they freaked out thinking it was a ghost and ran out of the place. Uh, Eventually, they found him. They realized it was a live person, a person they thought to be dead who was actually alive, and they pulled him out. Well, you know, in our culture today, things that are dead are very popular, that are reanimated. Obviously, zombies are really popular right now, and and we've been riding that train for a while. Um, But... But here, this is no joke, and this is absolutely serious, because one thing we can learn about the church from the church of Sardis is that God's church, his believers, are to, ha- to be alive. They're not to be dead. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. We too should be alive in him. And so this church in Sardis, is, as Jesus writes to this church, he tells them, 
to the angel in the church starters write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember those seven stars from chapter 1 and those seven spirits. The seven stars represent the messengers to the seven churches. And we said at the very beginning that this very well could be the, the pastors overseeing the church there in the, the city of Sardis. And the city of Sardis, if we go to a map real quick. Maybe. Nope. Okay. We're good. <laughs> the city of Sardis is just kind of below. Oh, there it is. city of Sardis is right below Thyatira, above Philadelphia. It's inland, and just make a notation real fast of the, the rocks around there. Cool, we have a laser pointer now. That's exciting. So <laughs> we're getting even more high-tech every Sunday. So the city of Sardis is, was actually a, a major trade route at one time. Its heyday, its golden age was around 500 uh, B.C., and uh, it, it was a, a very prominent city, a city built up on the citadel of Sardis was built up on this high cliff. It was almost impregnable. Um, and, and they were one of the main trade routes. Uh, it was an important city and a city that worshipped its god, Diana or Artemis. Well, Jesus says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the, the one who's in control of these seven messengers or the messengers to the churches, and the seven spirits, remember at the beginning we said that this is a reference back to Isaiah, that, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's really important to understand that the church birth date was the day of Pentecost. That is the church birth date. Uh, remember Jesus told the disciples early on, wait in Jerusalem, wait. Wait for what? Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. You'll have power and, and you'll, you'll be empowered to go forth. And so we found that that group of disciples, those early believers, praying until the day of Pentecost, which was 21 days after the resurrection, they are praying. And they're in the small room. And we read in the book of Acts chapter 2 that it's seemingly a, a wind came through and tongues of fire came around them and empowered them. Some started speaking in tongues. We saw a great revival on that day as they're sharing because people think, oh, these guys are drunk. And other people are saying, whoa, I hear them in my language. And uh, we see this power come upon the church. And we see the church begin to go out from that day. The day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church. But notice that they weren't supposed to do anything until the Holy Spirit came upon them. I, I notice in Acts chapter 2 that uh, we don't read about them planning out the next growth plan. They don't have a five-year plan in Acts chapter 2. They're, they're not putting this together. Okay, we want to see the numbers grow this way, and here's our business model for the church, and so on and so on. No, we, we find that they're just waiting for the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus said, wait, we're going to wait. Also because the fact is, is forget church growth Forget church models. Forget being seeker sensitive. Forget all these things. Because without the Holy Spirit, you simply have a dead church. If the leadership is dead, the church is dead. If the people are dead, the church is dead. So to Sardis, Jesus says, I'm the one with the Holy Spirit. I'm the one who gives the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm the one who holds the messengers in my hand. Listen up. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. A reputation of being alive. Interesting what a reputation can be. We can look really alive. 
we can look as though we got a lot going on. I mean, there's lots of churches today that seem like they look look really alive. There's a lot of activity, a lot of hustling and bustling. There's there's great clubs put together. But the sad part is, is churches that look alive but are actually dead don't last very long. Maybe a generation. They just wither and die. There's not much that's going on because there's no new growth. There's no new birth. There's no, they've lost something vital to the survival of the church. And I'll tell you what that is. It's that gospel message. They've completely forsaken it. They have this reputation, a name for being alive. They, they, people even in Sardis probably think that they're alive or active church. I'll never forget, I think it was in 2009 or 10, I went to um, Utah to pray with my friend. Uh, he was getting ready to plant a church in Utah. And we went around praying, but we stopped in the uh, Temple Square there in Salt Lake City. And I had never been there, so we kind of took a tour of the Temple Square. And we went into the Mormon Tabernacle. And, of course, if you've ever heard the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, that's where they perform. It's a big deal place or whatever. And so we were just kind of walking around Temple Square, talking to LDS tour guides and so on. And um, we went into the Tabernacle, and one of the first things that uh, they said, you know, the, the LDS are really big on how grand something looks and how big it is and all, all that sort of stuff. They're very proud of their heritage. They're very proud of coming out west and building and working together. Um, and so I'm in the, we're in the tabernacle, and they, they start pointing out to me the pews. And they said, do you see these pews? I'm like, yeah, yeah those are nice pews. You know, I, I, I'm not, I don't get big on pews, you know. And uh, they said, do you see how they look oak? Yeah. Well, these are actually pine. But we, because we didn't have access to any oak, we painted all, all the grains in there. and We made them to look like oak. I'm like, oh, so these oak pews are actually pine. Yeah, okay. Then, then they show me the pillars. Do you see these marble pillars? I'm like, yeah, those are actually pine. But, but we, we painted these to look like marble. Doesn't it look grand? And I was like, oh, man, it's a facade. It's just a facade, and some of us are really good with keeping up a facade. But I look Christian. I have a reputation for being alive. Even my family members will talk about me being a Christian, but inside we're either controlled by sin, we're unwilling to give up sin, unwilling to conform ourselves to the moral character of God, or we just are dead. We've, like Ephesus, lost our first love. We've got a lot of knowledge. We come to church regularly. We've gotten in this religious habit of being at church, but there's not much happening otherwise. A reputation. There's some churches today that uh, are big on signs and wonders. You know, every every service has to be a sign and wonder. There's got to be major stuff happening around, people rolling all over the ground, shaking, healings going on. Um, they, I, I, you know, it's got every Sunday they've got to compete with the previous Sunday. Hey, nobody's going to show up if we don't compete with the previous Sunday, right? Uh, So they've got to put on a bigger, better show every Sunday. Man, I don't ever want to be a church like that. I want to be a church that loves the Word of God, that desires the Holy Spirit's presence in this place, desires to worship God. I I sat with Bob Caldwell in Thailand, and Bob Caldwell is the pastor of uh, Calvary Chapel, Boise, Idaho, and he's he's got a pretty large church up there. And uh, he's, he's one of the original, I don't even know how to put it, but original church planners. Uh, we jokingly in, at Calvary call them the bishops, but it's a joke, so I don't really want to use that term. 
but, but one of the original guys who go up, went out and planted a church. And um, I asked Bob Caldwell because we had his son's band, Esterlin, come a couple years ago and play here. And it was wonderful worship, uh, worship time we had. And I said, hey, Bob, what's your opinion about the churches that are kind of desiring to do the, the, the concert experience for church worship? Uh, you know, I, and I don't want to be too critical. I, I recognize that they're trying to reach out to the lost and so on. But what's your opinion about this movement in the church to want to add smoke, the fog, you know, and the lasers and all this sort of stuff? And, and I loved what he said. He said, here's the deal. I, I believe in having quality musicians for worship. Musicians are good, but let's face it. If they were better musicians, they would be pro, but they're not pro. They're in church. So <laughs> I was like, whoa, because he's talking about his son too. Nick, not you, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, but he says, why are we trying to compete with the world? Why are we trying to do that? Why are we trying to get the world to say, hey, we're just like you guys, except we also believe in Jesus? Why not have a worshipful experience and let the worship of God be a testimony to God's goodness and his greatness? Why try to put on a rock concert every Sunday when all you're going to have to do is keep having a rock concert every Sunday and a better one at that? We'll never be able to compete with the world in this level. I was like, I really appreciate your candidness with me. It, it was really good. We, the church should not get this reputation of being alive, but be just like the world. We should be alive. We should be about the gospel. Jesus says this to, um, to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You see, the Pharisees were the guys who were supposed to be the moral reformers, the religious reformers of Jesus' day. These were the heroes. These were the guys that turned away from being Hellenized and following after the Greeks. And they were like, no, we're taking a stand and we're, gonna, we're not going to include ourselves in Hellenistic culture. We're going to be Jews because that's who we are. And they were the religious heroes of the day. But Jesus points out to them that you guys act spiritual. You look great on the outside, but the problem is you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're a grave. It, it doesn't matter what you, how good you look on the outside. Inside, you are dead. I, whenever I do memorial services, um, I, I, I kind of find that cemeteries are some of the most peaceful, beautiful places in the world. Have you ever noticed that? The problem is there's all these dead people. So I don't want to hang out there. You know, I, I just was up in the Sierras last weekend with the family, and it's gorgeous. The only place that I can get to that's quiet like the Sierras around here is probably Rose Hills Cemetery or something like that. The problem is I don't want to go there because I'm staring death in the face all the time. You know, everywhere you turn, I don't want to be there. But cemeteries can be beautiful. The problem is they're full of dead people. And by the way, Sardis, one of the things you could see from far off is their great cemetery. That was one of the things Sardis was known for, was this huge cemetery that from far away as you're approaching Sardis, you would see on top of the hill this giant cemetery, a culture known for being dead. Isn't it amazing that Jesus so so candidly tells them, look, you have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're just like those Pharisees who were all about religion, but inside there's no life at all. I wonder... Are you all about religion? Are you all about being religious? 
I, I always warn, especially young people, because I seem to deal with this more with young people, but there's a desire to go back to religious organizations, organizations that have been long established, organizations that have a lot of tradition built into them. And there's this desire to some way, some way connect with that and adopt that heritage, but I don't understand it. Listen, church, this isn't fancy. We don't have a lot of traditions going on here. We, we teach from the word, we worship God, and we take part in the Lord's table. But you know what? That's just what the early church did. We are in a long line of people who were in the early church, and they did these very same things. Yeah, we don't have a lot of sayings. We're not saying specific prayers. We're not going through lots of tradition. I'm not going to take your confession because I want you to confess it to the Lord. But don't desire after religion because religion only leads to death. Religion has an outward appearance of looking holy. But the fact is, is religion cannot change me. It cannot bring me back from the dead. Nor could it fix the Jews, right? That's why Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're dead. Jesus says to them, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I want to thank my dear brother Bryce over here for just having a conversation with me about my sermon prior to tonight because he reminded me of a passage that was just perfect and it was absolutely a word from the, the, word from the Lord, Bryce, so thank you for that. But I was, I was talking about what is the work of the church? What is the work of the church? And clearly we know that Jesus said, go forth, proclaim the kingdom of God. We know that the gospel message, make disciples of all the nations, is the work of the church. But John 6, Jesus has actually asked this very specific question. In John 6, verse 27, it says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. What is the work of God? That you believe in him who he has sent. To believe in Jesus. Well, wait, isn't there something else I can do? No, Jesus did it. You merely need to believe in him. And our belief will be followed by our actions. If we truly believe something to be true, we will live as such. So the action of taking care of the widows and the poor, the actions of feeding, feeding people who are hungry, the actions of what we'd call social gospel actions, those will follow the one uh, work of belief. Now, I'm not saying that, that belief is a, a work in the sense of that's what you earn your salvation with. Christ has earned that, so don't confuse that. But that is the one thing that Jesus says. What's the work? We'll believe in 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 uh, him who he has sent. We are to believe Jesus Christ. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. What have they received and heard? I want to take you over to 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I didn't put this in the slide. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, passes something on to them. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1. This is what Paul says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
now verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once uh, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So we'll stop there, but... Jesus, Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received, which is the first importance. This is the most important thing. And then it said, Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. This is that, remember what you received. This is that work that, that Jesus is correcting them on. They've strayed away from the belief in the gospel. What happens when we stray away from belief in the gospel? We lose its power. We lose the power of a resurrected person. We forget that Christ really did rise from the dead. We start compromising. We start saying, well, maybe it was more spiritual resurrection. I can rise above my circumstances or whatever the case is that people say. But we certainly don't see new growth. We start becoming about remaining an institution or an organization. Meanwhile, we'll see numbers start to dwindle because we want to make everybody in here comfortable. Oh, well, let's not cause too many waves on the outside by preaching the gospel. So let's just, let's just give somebody some food and hope that they ask why we're here. You know, there's no power. Listen, Paul says, frankly, that how can people believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? We have to share the gospel. The gospel message is the lifeblood of the church if the church forsakes the gospel message, and by the way, when I say church, I don't mean Dave Johnson preaching from a pulpit. I mean you, dear believer, those who are born again in Christ. If you forsake the gospel message, we're dead. We're dead. What good are you? Because God has put you in this place at this time to be his witness to those who are perishing. Now, I get it. It's awkward. I understand that, like, it can be kind of, like, embarrassing, you know. I remember one time responding to a car accident where a person was bleeding very badly, and um, I was on my way to a wedding, and I used, ended up using my tie as a tourniquet uh, temporarily until the paramedics got there. And, uh, and it was awkward, you know. I had to take off my tie. It was messy. I lost my tie because of the process. You know, it was like paramedics got there and they're like, what's going on? I'm like, this person's bleeding really bad right here. Um, they, they took over. And I could have been chewed out for putting a tourniquet because, you know, people get funny about tourniquets. But the person needed a tourniquet. That was, it was awkward, you know. I should have not done it, come to think of it. I should have just kept it myself. I should have kept on driving. Are you kidding me? How dare we do that? How dare we ignore the dying? I get it, it's awkward. But it is the power of God to bring the dead back to life. John shared with me when he was talking about his testimony how he first picked up a Gideon Bible. Some Gideon had enough faith to put that Bible in that prison. Why are you bringing it to these guys? These guys don't want the Bible. Some Gideon placed that Bible there. And some prisoner picked that Bible up and 
that seed was planted and it came to fruition. Do you trust that the gospel is the power of God? Do you really believe it? Because if you do believe it, you won't forsake it. You won't ignore it. You'll wake up. You'll keep it. I get that it's awkward, but listen, it's a command of our Lord to not do it, to not share the gospel is willful disobedience to God. To not share it is willful disobedience. I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Turn back to what you received. Remember that day when you came to Christ. Remember when you received Christ, when you received that message of the gospel, that life-changing message. Do you remember that? Do you remember your fervency, how excited you were? Do you remember the change that it brought in your life? Well, quit being apathetic. Come to life, repent, and turn back to that. That's what the call is for this church in Sardis. Come back to it. Well, you don't understand. I've messed up. I've, I've gotten way off track. Doesn't matter. Repent and come back. Turn back to the Lord. Well, you don't understand. I've, 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 I've you know, theologically, I've, I've learned so much more, and now I kind of, I, I tend to look at these things allegorically. What? Repent and turn back. Because the fact is, somewhere along the line, in your, in your apathy, you have started to forsake the power of God. Turn back. Remember that message and respond. That's what Jesus is crying out to the church of Sardis to do. Remember this. Come back. Not for his benefit. For theirs. I will... <clears throat> if you will... Not wake, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. Remember, I said how Sardis is built up on the cliffs there, on the hills, and, and they were 1,500 feet above sea level, impregnable. In fact, Sardis always had this idea of their former glory. In fact, when you read, when you read things about Sardis, it's all about how great they were in the 500s. Uh, it, it's not about how great they were when the Romans ruled or how great they were when the Persians actually conquered the city of Sardis. In fact, conquered the city of Sardis when their greatest king, their golden age king, was in power. You see, they only guarded one specific approach to Sardis because they thought, well, this we're impregnable. Uh, we're up so high, there's cliffs, and Cyrus the Persian came in and in uh, 546 B.C., and he was pretty upset at the king of Sardis because he wouldn't bend. So Cyrus said, all right, listen up, soldiers. Any soldier who figures out a way to, to breach the city of Sardis, I'm going to give you a reward. So one of their soldiers was walking around, and you can read about this in um, uh, Herodotus. One of their soldiers was walking around, and he saw somebody drop a helmet off of the, the citadel. And he watched as the soldier climbed down and climbed back up. And he's like, oh, cool. Thanks. That guy just showed me the whole path up to, up to the city, this impregnable city. So sure enough, he climbed the city and everybody, all the Persians climbed behind them. And they took the city in 546 B.C. And uh, the city was breached and became under the rule of Cyrus. Then, of course, Alexander the Great conquered the Persians. It remained under that rule. And it continued under other people's rule all the way through to 241 B.C. 
when Sardis had forgotten. They had forgotten. They were talking about all their former days. Remember how we were, remember how we were impregnable? Remember, oh, man, those were the good days. Do you remember, do you remember when, when we were in our heyday, the golden age? Do you remember when we were, had all these people coming to Do you remember when, do you remember when and uh, Antiochus the Great breached Sardis the very same way that Cyrus the Persian did two, 300 years earlier? <laughs> That's all it took. Do you remember when? I hope this church, this fellowship, and we're a new fellowship. We're a year old as a fellowship. But I hope this fellowship never gets to the point where we're saying, do you remember when? Now, of course, we can't say, remember when we had all these people? You know, (laughs) do you remember when we had more than 25? That was awesome. (laughs) Those are the days. No, but but we don't want to get into the case of, do you remember when? Because when we're saying, do you remember when we saw God's power? We might as well be saying we're dead. We're dead. Now we're trying to figure out how to keep the organization alive. Jesus tells them, if you don't change, I'll come like a thief. And, of course, these words echo from Matthew 24. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Christ is coming. And the early church taught us, the New Testament teaches us to be ready. His, his return is imminent. We know not at what time he's going to return for his church and take him. A couple of weeks ago when we talked about Thyatira, we showed that verse that those who didn't turn would be thrown into the great tribulation, to the tribulation. And so for the church in Sardis, it's saying, wake up because I'm going to come like a thief and you're going you're gonna to be robbed. You're going to go into judgment. Look here what he says. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In all these letters, Jesus knows those who are faithful. Jesus doesn't lump everybody together. It's just a group. And and I think this is a good reminder, a solid reminder, that we're not just talking about the church whatever the church is. We're talking about the people who make up the church, the born-again believer. There are some in this room who have not soiled their clothes, who have not turned apathetic. Yet there are some who are, have a reputation of being alive. Your family all knows you go to church every week. But you know, you know you're dead. You know that, that you've fallen far. You know that you've compromised morally. You know that you've lost your first love. There are some in this room that, that, that know that. And I encourage you, be the individual who repents because look at what he says next. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Clothed in white garments. Obviously, it's speaking about the purity of God, we read in Zechariah about Joshua, the high priest, who has a soiled garments removed and pure vestments put on him, and God does this work. We we read in the New Testament about the the uh, or in Revelation later on when we see those who have been martyred during the tribulation for their faith, they're given white garments to wear. We know that, but I'd encourage you to think about this. Jude tells us to hate even the garment stained by sin. 
we're not to just get used to seeing stains. I, I'm always fighting that here around this church. Um, you know, I'll, I'll walk down a hallway and I'll get used to almost seeing something out of place and then I'll keep walking by it. But then, but so I, I, I try to always, when I get here, look at, okay, what's, what do I need to watch for? Let me look at this in New Believers. And, you know, you see a cooler that somebody left out from the last event off to the side with the thing open. And it's like, oh, great, there's a toddler's going to fall in that and it's going to close, you know. So <laughs> I'm always like chasing around stuff or why is this that way or who left this here? And you find the most random stuff, by the way, in churches. I, I don't know why, like chairs appear out of nowhere, couches appear out of nowhere. And you're like, where did this come from? And uh, you find random stuff all over the place. Uh, you often find just dirt. And I don't ever want to get comfortable with just ignoring dirty carpet. I, I got on the preschool teachers recently for... Um, they, they didn't ask to get their carpets cleaned. And I walked in the preschool room. I'm like, oh, goodness, this looks terrible. I mean, obviously, they vacuum and everything all regular. But it just looked terrible. It looked stained. And, and I'm thinking about if my kid was a toddler. Well, my kid is a toddler. Or not really. She's actually four now. So she's out of that stage. But when she's in there playing, I don't want her, like, rolling around on this dirty carpet, right? It's gross. I want it to be clean. And... Uh, Jude tells us, hate even the garment stained by sin. Don't, don't just become comfortable because you're so used to seeing it that you ignore it. Don't become comfortable with sin because you're so used to being in it that you ignore it. Come out of it. Repent. The one who conquers receives this white garment. They'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, hold on. Let me just tell you this. This is, don't turn this into, your name will be blotted out of the book of life if you don't repent. It's not about that. This is a promise to the conqueror, not a cursing to the other person. Those who have their name written in the book of life, their name is in there. It's a promise. Those who are in Christ, those who who repent of this, those who confess the Lord Jesus Christ, their name is in the book of life and it will never be blotted out. Every city had a registry and every registry had every name of every citizen in that city in, in uh, the first century. And when you were a bad guy, when you were a criminal, they would blot you out. When you did something offensive in the city, like wear a stained garment in a, in a place like Sardis that all the garments are being produced and made, and you show up to worship Diana in the temple with a, a, a dirty garment on, you're going to get blotted out. You get blotted out of the city. You're out of here for being disrespectful to our God. Of course, we know that from Christ we receive the white garment, and from Christ our name is written in the book of life. We will never be blotted out. We can't screw this up. That's the awesome part. Those who trust in Christ, you cannot screw this up. It's Christ who did it for you. You trust in him. When he says repent, you repent. When he says come with me, you go with him. You can't screw it up. It's not about you. It's about him. Now notice this last part. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a situation where you're like hoping that the person who knows you will say like, oh, yeah, I know you. And they'll, they'll, they'll recognize you so you can get in somewhere. It's kind of like uh, being at a, a, 
well, one time, I, this is the closest situation I've ever had. I, I remember going to the Surfer Pole Awards. We would get invited to these because I, I had a, a past business in the action sports industry. And um, Surfer Magazine would put on these awards every year, and all the pro surfers and everybody was there. I was not a pro surfer. I know you might mistake me for one, but I wasn't. <laughs> and, um, and you know, you're going up to this thing, and they're checking your name on the list. And you're like, I hope my name's on the list. Because that would be really embarrassing to be like waiting in the line and like, no, check again, check again. Sure. Thankfully, my name was always on the list, so I, I got in. And I, I, I don't get very starstruck, but it makes a big difference to have your name on the list. That somebody knows who you are and they're saying, yeah, this one gets to come in. Even more so that Jesus Christ confesses you before the Father, the creator of the universe. Whoa. Jesus is saying, No, this one's mine. This is my bride. This is my bride. That was one of the coolest things about getting married. Being able to introduce my wife. This is my wife. That was cool. Jesus will confess us before his father. So no matter where you're at today, the message is the same. If you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead and you know you're dead, repent and turn back to the Lord. He is gracious and loving and kind and most of all forgiving. And he has you in this room tonight by his mercy that you'd hear this message. So respond. Respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And God, it is penetrating. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you... Petition us to repent of our sin, Lord, to follow you, to remember these things, Lord, to not drift off into meaningless efforts or plans or things that are really just a distraction from the wonderful life-changing message of your gospel. We thank you that you died for us on that cross, and we trust in you. And if there's anyone in this room that needs to repent or even needs to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, the prayer is simple. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I believe in what you did on that cross for me and I'm ready to follow you. Come into my life, be Lord. I thank you in Jesus' name, amen.